Good morning, friends. Merry Christmas. About a month ago, my four boys took their very first ride on a jet aircraft. And as our 737's enormous twin turbine engines began hurtling our family and about 150 others down the runway, you immediately began hearing the wonder and amazement that, that started flowing nonstop from my boys' mouths. And when, as they're staring out the windows, trying to see as much as they can, when that enormous plane finally lifted off the ground, their expressions of, whoa, we're flying, we're flying, it was just infectious. It was delightful. I wish I had recorded it. However, compare that reaction with the reaction of the other 150 or so people who were on board that same aircraft that was likewise lifting off of the runway. Most of them had headphones in or were taking naps or otherwise were barely paying attention. Didn't matter that a machine weighing hundreds of thousands of pounds was now soaring through the air or that we'd soon be flying at hundreds of miles per hour at tens of thousands of feet above the ground or that the very notion of what we were doing was nothing but mere fantasy just a hundred years ago. So one might think that every single person on that aircraft would be saying, whoa, we're flying, we're flying, just like my boys were. But they didn't. Most of them were simply off in their own worlds, concerning themselves with other matters. The Christmas story is a lot like flying on that jet. It seems like the vast majority of people are barely paying attention to what's happening. Most of us, most of the time, are functionally napping with headphones in while we soar tens of thousands of feet above the ground. Well, my aim this morning is to help you see in the Christmas story what my boys first saw as that aircraft took off. My aim is to help you marvel at what took place on that first Christmas day. And I'm going to do that in three points, which you can find on your outlines if you have one. The three points are that the Christmas story is real, the Christmas story is shocking, and the Christmas story brings with it very good news. So, ladies and gentlemen, please make sure that your seat backs and tray tables are in their full upright and locked positions. We're ready for takeoff. Let me pray for us one more time. Lord Jesus, I pray right now that you would deliver to my friends here a better sermon than the one I have prepared. I pray, God, that your spirit would speak through me, that your word would be seen for what it is, the very words of the living God, and that this morning we would marvel together at the wondrous thing that you have done on that Christmas day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Our text this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, which you can find on page 803 if you have one of our church Bibles. 803. We're going to start at the very beginning of the book of Luke. And now this section, right at the very beginning of Luke's gospel, is not usually read as part of the Christmas story, but it serves as the the backdrop to the entire story. Uh, Here, Luke explains what he's trying to do as he then tells the Christmas story and why he's doing it. All right, here's Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So, There was this guy named Luke, who is a trained physician and a personal friend of some of the biblical authors, and Luke decided to do a research project, both to learn and to confirm what happened in regard uh, regarding the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And he did so, so that this man named Theophilus, who was likely funding Luke's research project, would have certainty concerning the things that he had been taught about Jesus of Nazareth. And thankfully, we here today have the results of Luke's research project right here in what we call the Gospel of Luke. Okay, why does that matter? Because... Luke's account is true. It's true. It means that what you read in Luke's book here, including the Christmas story that we're about to read together, is reliably true. It really happened. Listen, when we hear that something amazing took place, most of us either want to go and see it and confirm it for ourselves, or we'll go and watch news shows, or 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 check our phones and read articles, or or listen to some podcasts, because we want to either see it for ourselves, or at least listen to people who did research, see it, know things about these topics. And the more amazing it is, the more we want to read it and understand it. The most amazing thing that could have happened is what Luke is going to cover right here in this story. Because Luke gets it. He, He says many have undertaken to compile this narrative. Others have written about this. Luke wasn't the first one. But what took place was such a marvel and so mind blowingly never before seen kind of amazing. He's like, I got to do my own homework here. So here's my research. Here it is. Luke names names. He identifies places. He gives dates and we have the end result. Here it is. Luke's research paper. So friends, that means that we can know, we can know with certainty that this account is historically and verifiably true. What you read in Luke's account here is not a collection of ethereal, unverifiable doctrines. Because Luke isn't interested in starting some new religion. That's not what he's trying to do. And it's not a series of of myths and legends to understand how the cosmos came together and how life works. Because Luke is grounding his account in history. Names, places, dates, details. 
And this account doesn't require magic spectacles that you, only one person can see under certain conditions. No, it's literally the exact opposite of that. He presents it all, plain and simple, fully inviting others to investigate his research as they so see fit. All of that means, friends, that we can have confidence that the Christmas story actually happened. It's real. So what does it mean for us here today on Christmas Eve? Well, most of us, tomorrow morning, will be surrounded by fake things. We'll sit in front of YouTube fireplaces with fake Candles illuminating our fake Christmas trees while we open fake gifts of fake cars and fake babies and fake superheroes and things like that. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not here trying to grinch your Christmas or bah humbug. I hope I get some of those fake superheroes. There's still time. But in our world that shines and glitters with so many fake things, we mustn't forget what's real. The Christmas story is not just another clickbait headline that you should scroll past. Luke has given us his full investigative report, and he invites all of us to check it out for ourselves and to believe it, because the Christmas story is real. So, without further ado, let's actually read that real account. Second point on your outline, the Christmas story is shocking. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the entire story, but I will offer a little commentary as we go, uh, because even if the story itself may seem um, like like, like we just know this, we've heard it lots and lots of times, uh, some of the words and phrases used in here may be a little unfamiliar to at least some of us. So, To set the stage, Luke had just shared, we're going to pick up in verse 26, 27. I think I have 26 written down. It should be 27. Um, He had just shared that an old lady whose name was Elizabeth had gotten pregnant. Which, in case you're not up to speed on human biology, doesn't happen. See, there's this thing called menopause. Ask your parents. Uh, Just know that old ladies can't have babies. But this old lady is now in her sixth month of pregnancy. Well, that's where we pick up here in chapter 1, verse 27. In the sixth month, that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So here's a vocab word, virgin. Okay, let's just say that a virgin is a woman who can't have a baby. Okay, verse 28. And he, Gabriel, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was, very understandably, greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. 
And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Which is a good question because this angel just told her that somebody who's, who can't have a baby is going to have a baby. And the angel answered her, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. Okay. Did you catch that dialogue? Okay. The question that Mary asked was, how does someone who can't have a baby have a baby? The, the angel gives three answers. First, God will do it. Second, God already did it with Elizabeth. And third, God does whatever he wants. Okay. Those are good answers. Verse 38, and Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Okay, let's fast forward, jump down to chapter two, chapter two, verse one. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So basically, Caesar Augustus wanted to count all his people, probably so he could get more taxes, because that's normally why leaders count all their people. Okay, so this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Okay, that's awkward. Okay, that, that word betrothed, it means engaged. It means they're going to get married, but she's with child. She's very obviously pregnant, which means that anybody watching them and they're like, oh man, when, when, when did you guys get married? And they're like, yeah, soon it's going to happen. They're like, oh, 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 I see. Either Mary... Or Mary and Joseph did something very morally wrong. And everybody knows it. Okay, so this is a very awkward situation. All right, we're picking up again verse 6. And while they were there in Bethlehem for the census, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn, which probably meant that either the inn was full because of the census and everybody's moving all over the place so they didn't have homes. That's likely what happened. But it could also mean that the innkeeper noticed, hey, you know, no wedding ring, big belly. We don't, we don't want this in our inn. Maybe it's both. Who knows? Okay. Verse eight. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. Okay, listen, something you'll notice in this story and basically every other place in the Bible where angels show up, these these aren't like little babies with wings. These aren't like little petite ladies wearing choir robes, okay, like that often appear in our nativity sets because Everybody is terrified every time they see an angel. The angel's first words always have to be, fear not, or do not be afraid. I don't have to say that when I walk up to my friends. So like, I, I, there's something terrifying here. 
These, these angels aren't cute or pretty. They're warriors. This is God's military. And it just so happened that they could sing really well. Probably everybody in heaven sings really well. And, and, and anytime these warriors show up, they always have to caveat the rest of what they're saying with don't be afraid. Unless they do want you to be afraid. But usually not. Okay, so when you hear angel, don't picture cute little babies. Think gladiators with assault rifles. Okay, that should be the kind of emotions that you have when you see angels. Okay, back to our story. Verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among all those with whom he is pleased. All right, so did you catch what's happening here? Now there's not just one gladiator with an assault rifle, but it's like Beaver Stadium full of gladiators with assault rifles, and they're all singing. All right. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, understandably, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste quickly and found Mary and Joseph and the baby in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Wow. Did you see how many shocking, marvelous things are happening in this account? Chapter 1, verse 27, we got a pregnant old lady. And by the time we get to chapter 2, we got a pregnant virgin also. And practically every single verse has angels showing up and there's a whole bunch of them. Now, maybe you've seen those things happen before. Maybe you've run into choirs of angels and pregnant old ladies on, on the regular, but I never have. And that's the point. Friends, all of these shocking things are meant to get our attention. Just like they did for everyone in this account. Look at like verse 18. All who heard it wondered. Verse 19. Mary treasured up all these things. Verse 20. The shepherds were glorifying and praising God. And, and like all of these marvels that they had seen and that they had read about, that they had heard, all this. One, it's just one giant heavenly neon sign. Listen, God has laid out innumerable amazing things all throughout creation. Everywhere you look, there are amazing things. From enormous galaxies that are literally billions of light years away to the the pure genius and incredible complexity of microscopic life forms. From the vastness of oceans to the brilliance of sunsets to the unfathomable amount of data in a single strand of DNA. 
Everywhere we look and at every conceivable degree of magnification, all creation is bursting forth with praise to its creator. But that causes a problem, doesn't it? Because if you were God and you'd created all of this marvelous stuff everywhere you look, in what way could you possibly spotlight the most important thing that has ever happened across all time and space? You'd have to do something so shocking that it couldn't be ignored. So in order to do that, you would have to do a series of impossible things. Marvelous things. And you'd do it again and again and again in rapid succession. And you'd arrange for someone who is vocationally trained to pay attention to all the details. Let's say a physician, hmm, to write it all down and to pass it along to all generations to come so that those generations can be certain of everything that they had been taught. If you were God, wouldn't you do all of that very much like this? Don't miss this, friends. Don't Miss the marvel of Christmas. When God brings so much shock and glory to bear on a single moment in history, don't miss it. We've got to pay attention because that giant heavenly neon sign is pointed directly and specifically at one critically important message. The Christmas story brings with it very good news. That's the last point in your outline. The Christmas story brings very good news. All right, so what, what is that good news? What, what is it that all of this is culminating and pointing toward? Well, let me reread it. Here it is, starting in chapter 2, verse 10. Gabriel the angel said... I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And if you jump down to verse 21, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Right here, friends, is why God orchestrated all of this. It's all centered on this news, on this singular day of history. A very, very special baby was born, and that baby is Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior, who is called Christ the Lord. What, what does it mean that a Savior was born? Like, salvation is certainly a, a marvelous thing. It's, it's good news, but why do we need to be saved? What do we need to be saved from? Well, to answer that, let me read just a brief summary given in another book of the Bible from Titus chapter 3. You don't need to turn there, but I want you to, to listen first for the problems and then listen for the salvation. This is Titus 3, starting at verse 3. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. 
That's a problem. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What this text is telling us is that all of us are naturally born into a hopeless state. We're fools. Fools who are easily deceived. We're, we're slaves. We're, we're searching for pleasures that will never satisfy. And our lives are characterized by anger and jealousy and hatred. This is what the Bible calls sin. And, and we who commit these sins are called sinners. It means we're, we're naturally inclined to mess everything up. Everything we touch turns to rot. It, it, in our lives and others' lives and our relationship with other people, with God himself. We've, we've destroyed all of it. We've made God and everyone our enemies. So we need salvation. Well, friends, this text blessedly goes on to tell us that God, our Savior, indeed, Jesus, our Savior, saved us. Jesus saved us. Even us, foolish, enslaved Sinners who could never save themselves, we couldn't do it, so Jesus did it. Jesus saved us not because we're all good, but because he is. Jesus saved us not because we're loving, but because he is. Jesus saved us so that we would be at peace with God and others, transformed from deceived, unsatisfied, hopeless haters into beloved, regenerated, forgiven, and free sons and daughters of God himself, and that this would be so forever and ever and ever. And all of that came to pass because a baby was born in time and space. That's why Gabriel said, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. My friends, the very good news of Christmas, that very good news of great joy that Gabriel brought is all about Jesus. This is the story of the singular moment of history in which that giant heavenly neon sign is pointed and around which all of creation is centered and on which history hinges. So what does this mean for us here on Christmas Eve? Well, I think we could all learn a thing or two from my boy's first flight on that 737. See, no one had to tell them to marvel at the wonder of what was taking place. I didn't have to tell them. They simply saw it for what it was. My friends, the enemy does not want us to pay attention 
to what is taking place. The world around us does not want us paying attention to what is taking place. And our hearts, our sinful, messed up hearts, conspire with all of them such that we do not pay attention to what is taking place. We literally or metaphorically just stick in our headphones and we decide it's nap time. I'm just going to check out. And in doing so, we fail to pay attention to what is marvelous. And we fail to glory in that which is glorious. We're blocking out God and we're looking elsewhere, anywhere, to find something exciting and motivating and glorious and satisfying. But listen, the psalmist tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. The psalmist says, just look up. It's not hard. And the the psalmist also says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So if you're not going to look up, just look around. Look at today is a date in history. God's doing awesome stuff. Marvel at it. And the psalmist also says, praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heaven. He's saying, you know, if, if you're not going to look up or look around, check it out. Everybody else is. They're all looking out the window and they're yelling, we're flying. Don't you want to celebrate with them? Don't you want to see this and experience it? Oh, Man, we're not called to praise God because he needs praise from us. The psalmist just simply wants us to look out the window like my boys and praise him. So here's a question for you to consider, courtesy of my boys and the psalmists. What is playing in your headphones this Christmas? What is most likely to grab your attention and capture your affections such that you are missing the marvel of what God has done and is doing for us in Christ Jesus? What is it that declares most loudly in your ears? Sure, Christmas is fine, but oh, this thing, whatever this is, it is greater joy, greater news. Just get this. And then, you know, Christmas will just be another day. Who cares? What is that? Maybe, maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a, a job, a vacation, a movie or a book or, or something like that. Maybe it's a Christmas present. I'll tell you, you know what it is for me? It's the constant promise of, Tom, you're almost done. You're almost done. I'm almost caught up. Just one more project completed. One more task off the list. And what good news there will be on that day. Oh, then you can rest. You can do whatever you want. Great joy is there. So I'm, I'm just going to put in my headphones here and I'm going to get back to work. Don't worry. I'll be sure to rejoice in Christ's amazing work next week. Probably. Because I'm almost done. Maybe that sounds familiar for some of you. Maybe for you it's a different temptation. So my encouragement to you and to me this Christmas is to take out the headphones. Lay aside those temptations and look out the window at the marvels of what God has done in Christ and is doing in Christ. Why not join my boys in saying, wow, 
Well, let me suggest one very practical way to do that. Because we are now a week away from the end of 2023. And so if you haven't already made a plan, a purposeful plan, for how you are going to marvel in what God has done and is doing for 2024, let me suggest this is a great week to do that. And so a great way to accomplish that very thing is to pick up a Bible reading plan for 2024. Commit yourselves to reading through the whole Bible at least once during the next year so that you can daily fill your mind with all the marvels that you can find in God's Word. Personally, I'm going to be reading the popular Robert Murray McShane reading plan. In this plan, you you read about four chapters a day at, at different parts of the Bible. And over the course of the year, you go through the Old Testament once and the New Testament twice. I've done this in years past and really enjoyed it. It's it's not too hard. It's not like those read 15 chapters a day kind of plans that some of you out there I know do. I can't do that. Uh, but it, it gives me just enough variety such that my ever-distracted brain keeps paying attention. I just You read a chapter and you flip to the next section. You do that a few times. I really enjoyed it. And if you're interested... I want to invite all of you to join me. Whether you've read the Bible many times through, or or maybe this morning was the first time you ever read from the Gospel of Luke, there is a link to the plan on our church website right now. And so you can visit our homepage and read more about it. In fact, there's a link there to this nifty little thing. It's just a PDF file that you can print. And if you print it double-sided, it makes for it shows the whole plan for the whole year with little check boxes. And so people like me, it's like, I did it! And you can do that all year round and you keep track of where you are so you don't lose your section. And it makes for a nice bookmark right in your Bible. Now, if that's not the plan for you, no problem. I would rather, at whatever stage of life you're in, whatever kind of suits your fancy, uh, I'd much rather you read the Bible regularly and joyfully than read what Tom is doing. But if you do decide to to do this plan with me, send me an email. I would love to maybe read it together, encourage you along the way, and get a text group or something. Who knows? All right. Let me close our time with a couple final applications that flow from the lips of Gabriel in what he declared to those shepherds long ago. He said, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for all the people. I appreciated Dan praying for that this morning before I got up here. Note that Gabriel didn't say for all Israel or for all ethnic Jews which is really good because to the best of my knowledge, we have no first century Jews here among us right now. We live in a different world at a different time with all sorts of backgrounds and beliefs and we have our own pains and, and fears and much, much more. But Gabriel said, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, including us and including others. So let me encourage you. Yes, God sent his son to be your savior, but he also sent him to be the savior for others. So this Christmas, who is one person in your life that you can share this good news with? One person. 
Who is one person, whether a friend or a neighbor or maybe a family member that you will see tomorrow, who you can share this marvelous good news with? I encourage you, write down their name. Pray for them today. And and make a plan for when you could share this good news with them. It doesn't have to be long and complicated. You don't, you, in fact, you shouldn't probably give them a 30 minute sermon. <laughs> it could be as simple as asking that person, have you read what the Bible says about Christmas? Would it be okay if, if I just read it right here just for a couple minutes? So do that. Read a few verses from Luke one or two and then ask them, what do you think? Let them see your wonder. Let me tell you, when my boys were yelling, we're flying! Even people that had their headphones in smiled and looked back and like gave a thumbs up. You know, like, they're like, you got something there. They know it's awesome, but they don't know where to look. You can show them. Now, if, if you're not a Christian here this morning, my, my last application is for you. Please hear God's message to you clearly. This good news is of great joy for you. God sent his son for you to save you. And this morning he's inviting you to consider what you've heard and to marvel at it. We've seen that the Christmas story is real and you should believe it. We've seen that the Christmas story is shocking. It should grab your attention. And best of all, We've seen that the Christmas story brings with it this marvelous good news that Jesus Christ came to save you. You needn't put yourself together first. You needn't do anything first. You need only trust in Jesus Christ to be your savior. And then you can forever marvel at this very good news of very great joy. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Christmas. Thank you that you put this giant heavenly neon sign for us such that we can know that all of history was hinged on this moment, that you centered all of creation around this person. And thank you that you put people in Luke's life that he could interview and research and, and, and put this whole account together this research paper, this investigative report, so that we can have certainty of the things we have been taught. Encourage us, Lord, today to marvel at what you have done. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.